Thank you, Stu, very much. Good morning, everyone. I was going to say, if it starts to get a little warm in here, feel free to, those of you who are on the sides there, open up windows if you like, to adjust according to your comfort. <laughs> to all of you who are visiting here today, it's a great blessing to have you with us. Let us know if there's anything that uh, we can do for you to if, uh, Sometimes when you go to a new place, you don't know where things are or whatever, just ask anybody. We're happy to point you where you need to go. Any questions about anything, by all means, let us know. For those who are listening online, welcome. Glad to uh, have you with us today as well. All right, 2 Corinthians, as we continue on in our study of this marvelous, perplexing at times, uh, incredible letter from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, last time I spoke with you, uh, we were in chapter 6. We had wrapped up that chapter, and actually that, that uh, section really ends at verse 1 of chapter 7. We'll have opportunity to think about what was said in chapter 6 uh, as we consider this larger context, but I want you to keep this in mind before we read chapter 7 uh, through down through the end of it, in that Paul has been talking to the Corinthian church about the necessity of keeping themselves holy from that which is wicked. Of And, it, and in chapter 6 it ends up you know, with, come out from among them, be separate, right? Um, don't touch the unclean thing. How can... How can uh, what is of God have fellowship with, with darkness. And then it ends with this admonition um, in verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, and the promises, you remember, had to do with the Lord saying, as you are holy, as you come out and separate yourselves from what is wicked, then I will be your God, you shall be my people, I will dwell with you. These precious promises of fellowship and communion with God that are built upon holiness, which really should come as no surprise to to, to us as we look at the message of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, thinking of the phrase uh, that holiness and peace have kissed each other. That is the necessity of, uh, if there's going to be genuine peace and genuine um, uh, concord between God and man and man and man, that there has to be holiness involved. Uh, just uh, slapping some uh, whitewash over the top of the problem doesn't fix it. It only hides the, uh, the uh, corruption hides the defilement. So that's why Paul says, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And then we get to this section in chapter 7, which seems like a total uh, change of, of direction and thought, but it really isn't, all right? So let's stand as you're able for the reading of God's holy word. I'll begin reading at verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and read down to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great 
pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong or for the sake of one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the, call, at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Please do be seated. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of our relationships were just as rock solid from the time they began to the time that they, they would end in death or for whatever reason, that, that our relationships were never shaken by a lack of confidence in another person, particularly when that lack of confidence comes about because of sin. But sin is an ever-pervasive problem. It plagues all of us. And even when we mean well, we often don't speak well or act well in regard to others. And we bring damage into a relationship. And when we deliberately sin uh, to satisfy our own desires, we really damage relationships. Or people can do that to us and damage the relationship with us when we are the victim of that, so to speak. Sometimes that damaging sin really is the fault of somebody else. We can look at that. Yeah, it's that other person's fault. Sometimes, all too often, the fault that brought about the damage of that relationship rests with us, or at least to some degree. So it's a pretty tall order, then, to try to restore relationships to where there is a renewal of confidence and there's a, there's a comfort in that relationship. Did you notice... How many times as we read through this passage that the word comfort was repeated over and over and over again? Paul has been talking to the Corinthian church 
about their sin, about their issues, and about how uh, they have made strides, they've made progress, there's still more to be done, but um, he's, he's thankful that they have made the progress that they have while he's still urging them to greater holiness, to greater determination, to be separate from what is sinful, from what is wicked. And uh, yet, look at what he says at verse 16 again. An absolutely remarkable statement. How can Paul make this statement after all that has gone on between him and this church? This church that began so well, an incredible time when the Lord said to Paul when he was there in Corinth, don't be afraid, I've got lots of people in this city, have at it, Paul. And he does, establishes this church in the middle of the, one of the most corrupt societies of the age. And all goes well until Paul tells them that they were wrong about something. Because they were wrong about something. And many didn't like it. Many wanted to tolerate the wickedness, the terrible wickedness that was going on. And try to put all kinds of, of uh, different philosophical and self-justifying arguments why this was okay. And Paul kept saying, no, this is not okay. And he caused grief in their midst. And yet, after all of this, and all the back and forth, and their rejection of him, and the arguing, and, the, and the, the teaching, and the anger, and the other things that they were expressing towards him, he says, I have complete confidence in you. Is he lying? I don't think so. How could he say that? You know, this series through 2 Corinthians have been titled Tearing Down Strongholds. There have been lots of different kinds of strongholds that Paul addresses uh, that uh, he has helped us know how to address. But here we see uh, behind all of this, there's a, there's a great stronghold of our adversary, the devil, that we need to strive to tear down in our midst. And that is uh, division and distrust of one another. If... If there was ever a cause not to have confidence in a congregation, Paul had it. He had plenty of cause to look at the Corinthians and go, these guys messed up, they continue to mess up, their thinking's wrong. I, I just, oh, almost a, you can almost see justification for just throwing up your hands and going, well, that's that. Nothing more I can do for these folks. But Paul says, I have confidence in you. And he is able to say that because of what we see in the remainder of this chapter. It take, in order to tear down this stronghold of distrust and division between us that's brought about because of sin, that has damaged our, our relationships uh, with one another, not to mention our relationship with the Lord, um, it's going to take more than just hand-wringing and wishful thinking in order to restore personal relationships with each other, corporate relationships within the body that are damaged. It's going to take uh, what Paul has done on the one hand and something that the Corinthians have done on the other that are revealed in this chapter. So let's look at verses 2 through 7 and then also 12 through 16. 
They will provide the context for us, of what, what, particularly from Paul's side of things, of what, what has taken place in order to lay the groundwork for restoration of relationship. And that context is summed up in one word, discipline. Discipline. Now, discipline is one of those words in, modern, in the modern church that often has... Uh, you say the word and people have a you know, revulsion towards that word. They don't want to hear it. Many churches don't practice it, or if they do, they practice it badly. Or they, just, or, or they kind of go about it with sort of a, you know, a slap on the hand kind of approach. Um, or they go at it with a club over the head. It's difficult to do well, but it must be done. Faithful discipline is the mark of a faithful church. And so, but what should it be characterized by? Now, you'll notice that through this whole section here, the word discipline does not appear. Paul doesn't say, because I disciplined you. But he is referring to his letter. He's referring to his presence, his teachings, his, his confrontation of them. And it's all within the context of the discipline that he was exercising. And how is that discipline characterized what was evident in Paul's approach to discipline? So I'm speaking particularly here, there's an there's a, a official discipline within the church, of course, so to those that are in leadership, uh, I would say to you that to certainly listen to this in terms of, of how, how, how should the, relation, the, the discipline that I do be characterized. But you, know, you can make, by extension, every relationship that we have, parents to children, children to parents, um, if you're in a workplace setting or just in the, in the larger context of a believer who's striving to, to uh, one-on-one in a personal relationship uh, help someone who's struggling with sin or has, who has offended you or, or whatever so that relationship is damaged, how do you confront each other in a godly way? in the context of either formal or informal discipline, confronting others with their sin. Look at the characterizations that you see as Paul describes what he did. All right? Beginning of verse 2. We have wronged no one. That is a remarkable statement. Anybody here be able to say that? Paul says we have wronged no one. What does that mean? When you look at some of the terms that are here, he's really speaking about the justice with which he acted. He acted in justice. He did not adversely favor someone who didn't deserve it, nor did he uh, go after someone who maybe did deserve something, but issued out for just out of out of spite or because he could lay it on more heavily than was necessary in an effort to totally, totally humiliate somebody. He responded in a just way to the situation in accordance with the justice of God. We wronged no one. Now I could spend a lot of time talking about each one of these things, so I'm not going to uh, as much as I would like to because I really want to finish this whole uh, thought today because 
this whole passage today because it really comes together in a marvelous way that uh, I trust will be a blessing to you. But the, to, to really be conscious of the fact of what God has said about what has actually been done wrong and what should be done to address it. Paul wronged no one. Secondly, he says, we've corrupted no one. Paul did not engage in his, in his discipline with the Corinthian church in a way that would just tear them down and leave them in shambles. He acted, if you put it positively, he worked to edify them. You know, it's easy to destroy somebody. And corruption really is about the disintegration of things. It's much harder to put things together. When people's lives are falling apart, whether it's an, an offense that someone has exercised against you, or just an exercise, a, a, a sin that's been exercised within the context of the body, and thus bringing harm to the whole body, whether it's testimony or it's, it's, it's heart. It's easy to do, take a, a slash and burn approach to teach somebody a lesson. But doing so accomplishes really nothing in the way of restoring any sort of relationship at all. And in fact, it further destroys it. Now, I grant you that to the person who's being corrected, sometimes any correction that is done may feel like you're trying to do a, you know, you're trying to beat them down. But that's a misunderstanding on their part. Paul is speaking from his own perspective. I, my goal was not to destroy you. And, and he really makes that clear later on in the passage too, doesn't he? You might recall as we read through that. He was in, interested in building them up into a, into a holy body that was, that was faithful in their testimony for Jesus Christ in the midst of incredible corruption in society. So his discipline was characterized by justice, by edification, and then we have taken advantage of no one. Well, what's the, I was thinking, well, what's the, we don't even know what taking advantage of somebody is. In their moment of weakness, we exploit them for our own gain, whether, you know, bribes, money, you know, that kind of stuff. We're familiar with that. But also just in terms of position, influence, uh, how we want them to regard us, all those kinds of things. We can, we can manipulate people and take advantage of them in their weakness, um, particularly if they're, they know that they've been in the wrong. And now what can I do to make it right? Hmm, let's see what we can do to make it right in a way that, again, goes beyond what is actually what God would have, but more like what we want. So the opposite of that, rather than Paul taking advantage of them and looking upon them as they're some, they, they are there somehow to serve him and benefit him, he, his discipline was characterized by an attitude of desiring to help them. That he would be the servant to them rather than... In, 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 in effect, almost, if anybody was going to be taken advantage of, Paul is basically saying, I would be taken advantage of by you, not the other way around. I'm here to help you in the discipline. You know, I think if more churches practice discipline with the idea of, a, with a servant's attitude, I think, uh, yes, discipline's never pleasant, but I think it would be 
not such a horrible concept to some people um, if they recognize that th this is about helping others and not just tearing them down. Take a look also at verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And really you can see this uh, as well down where he's speaking about Titus. The company, uh, verse 6, comforting the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by the comfort that uh, you know he had in, in uh, uh, his coming, just the fact that Titus showed up. Remember, we talked about that before, that he was waiting for Titus to give a report. And when Titus came and gave Paul the report that the Corinthians had repented, Paul was overjoyed and was like, I'm down there like a shot. I'm, I'm coming just as soon as I can. He was excited about that. But notice, it wasn't just that news. It was also, he was comforted by Titus's comfort. The fact that Titus was overjoyed at what he learned from the Corinthian church, that, that Titus had been encouraged, that Titus had been received. You see that down there at the uh, end of this chapter as well. The, Titus was full of joy. His spirit was refreshed by them. You know, there's an aspect of, of discipline that I think often gets lost in the effort to try to do things right, to make sure people, you know, get all of their ducks lined up in a row and, and do things properly. We get very business-like. But there's something that's missing that is revealed here by these comments, and that is empathy. Paul's, Paul, not just feeling with, that's sympathy, but empathy, really identifying with and essentially feeling the same uh, emotions with them having a heart with them and a heart also with uh, that, that's encouraged by Titus. <clears throat> what does this have to do with discipline? Sometimes empathy uh, can be misused into a, a willingness to overlook things, to say, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, never mind. It's not such a big deal. It's okay. I know you meant well, blah, 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 blah. And thus, Again, not really covering the problem. But genuine empathy with, with those who are caught up in sin, who are struggling with it, and particularly when they are confronted with that sin and respond properly, as the Corinthian, we're going to see the Corinthians did, to what, what that says is that there is an, a, a, a total trust in the reality of what's going on in the life of that person. That you don't just take it for granted that you know, but you actually feel with them their pain, their struggle, their fears, so that you can humbly and lovingly deal with them rather than, here's the rule, this is what you do, you know, shape up, Take it like a man, whatever silly kind of statement we want to say to somebody. No, there's an empathy of recognizing that there but for the grace of God go I when you're the offended one. Um, 
And to have that kind of approach when you discipline others, Paul said this was evident, and it's clear he's he's demonstrating this this empathy, and just and it's heightened because of the testimony of Titus as well. And feeling this with Titus, it's just magnified. And there's a, another aspect which I looked at this and I had to think about it for a little bit about uh, what's going on here. But Paul says. Um, in verse four, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. So I guess I could actually could have put another point in here about about being bold. Um, he, his discipline wasn't. Uh, you can just add this in here somewhere for those of you who are taking notes. But his discipline was not characterized by by weakness or some mousiness, wishy washiness. It was bold. It was it said what needed to be said. Didn't uh, uh, mess around that way. Um, didn't leave things undone that should be done. He acted boldly toward them. And he says, uh, I have great pride in you. I thought, great, what, what is he saying there? Um, you know, parents, when our kids do well about something, we might say to them, I'm really proud of you. And maybe you've had somebody say, I'm really proud of you for something that you've done or said, uh, presumably well. Um, what does that mean? I didn't think about that. You know, we're so used to thinking about pride as being something that is a negative, as it so often can be, but there is an appropriate uh, type of pride. And I think uh, it comes down to the word satisfaction. Paul looked at the Corinthian church and the work that he was doing with them and seeing that they were responding to what was being said, even though for a while it was tough and he had to be pretty hard on them. He was bold uh, in his approach to them, even to the point of causing uh, distress in them that was necessary at the time to shake them out of their lethargy and their rebellion. But when they responded well, he was quick to approve. There are some that have experienced discipline at the hands of others. Um, and I'm particularly thinking uh, within the church where for whatever reason, and I've never been able to distinguish uh, or discern what possible reason biblically or otherwise uh, would justify such an approach, but basically wants to basically never is satisfied, never approves, always is waiting for the next shoe to drop, always basically with, a, with an attitude of, of uh, you must repent. And by the way, your repentance uh, must be demonstrated now for the rest of your life to, in perfection according to our expectations or you can never possibly be restored. Which is an utterly hopeless business, is it not? Because no matter how well-intentioned we are, we can repent one moment, but because of our sins, we can fall the next and have to repent all over again. That doesn't make the first repentance any less sincere. But if we act as if uh, somehow you and I, when we are confronting others and disciplining others, have to be ultimately satisfied to the end of days before we will ever see a restoration of our confidence in that relationship, then there will be no restoration there will ultimately be no relationship. Paul is saying in his discipline, 
as he confronted the Corinthian church, he, was, he saw their response and approved of it, was satisfied in it, and rejoiced in it. Thus his words, I have great pride in you. And then the, the, uh, he says, I am filled with comfort. And we're going to talk more about comfort in a moment uh, from uh, verses 6 and 7 and uh, also verses 12 and 16. But discipline that looks for uh, a, a restoration of, of peace and ease within a relationship. Anybody here like to have a relationship with somebody that's filled with tension, walking on eggshells? Anybody like that? It's really great, isn't it? Well, maybe we're not yelling at each other, but no, we're just whispering because we're afraid. There's no comfort in that kind of relationship and no comfort in that kind of restoration. How do you fix that? Paul was willing to be at ease and at peace with them. And indeed, because of their response, that was brought about. I'm going to talk more about that in, in full in a minute here because it's a central thought in this passage. So I'll move on to the next one where he says, in all our affliction, and Paul, remember earlier in this in this letter, had talked to them about all the afflictions and the difficulties and the trials and everything else that he'd gone through on their behalf as well as on behalf of all the churches and for the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, in all those afflictions, I am overflowing with joy. Does the word joy and the word discipline usually go together in a sentence? And yet Paul says, I'm overflowing with it in the midst of my, of my dealings with you, O Corinthians. How can that be? Well, it's because of their response, which again, we're going to look at here in just a moment. The final thing that I'll note here has to do with that phrase, in all our affliction, and he speaks also uh, of the... Uh, the uh, just the, the fightings without and the fear within that's in verse 5 there. Discipline requires sacrifice. Requires a willingness to endure through the challenges that come with that process. It may be distance, it may be time, it may be the toll that it takes on your health, any number of other things. Paul approached discipline with a sacrificial, not a self-serving attitude. And thus the work that he did in addressing the sins of the Corinthian church bore fruit. So this is the context of restoring confident relationships that have been broken because of sin. And certainly the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church had been broken because of their sin. He confronted them Firmly, boldly, yes, but with these characterizations here of just being just and edifying and helpful and empathetic and being satisfied and approving, being willing to be comforted and find peace in the progress that they were making, joyful because of that, at whatever it took. That's what discipline should be characterized by. And discipline that... This discipline, not just in its exercise, but then think about what its goal is. And I think if I asked all of you the discipline, uh, sorry, the goal of discipline within the church, you, I think everybody here pretty much would say restoration. 
And that, of course, is great. But that's one thing to say it in our heads. But for many, the comfort that is sought by, the, by relationships being restored, again, whether it's within the church or whether it's one-on-one, right? The comfort that is often sought and which, by the way, is rather easily achieved is not much more than a cessation of immediate tension or immediate conflict, uh, calling it good enough, and then moving on. Just going to put it away. It's not going to think about it anymore. But Paul's discipline was administered with a much higher and harder goal in mind. And that is genuine restoration. Restoration that brings comfort instead of distress and confidence instead of suspicion. That's Paul's goal. And look, as he describes, we get that by inference from what he says about the nature of his comfort. And there's several things I want you to notice here about this. Beginning there at verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast? Who is the ultimate source of our comfort? Our Lord. He is the He is our caring restorer. He's the one who ultimately restores us. Just think about this. And we've been talking about this in terms of conflict between people and within churches and that sort of thing. But let's take a step back for a moment. And think about the conflict that exists between us and our creator. How is confidence in that relationship restored? Because Surely we are the offenders who have sinned against the holy God. And beginning with our salvation and ongoing through the whole process of sanctification, how is our relationship established and maintained in peace and joy and comfort and unity with our Lord? It's because our God is the one who grants comfort. Our God is the one who has disciplined us. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf to save us so that his righteousness would be imputed to our account. And he's the God who continues to discipline us, still being received because of the blood of Jesus to refine us, to purify us, so that we do recognize that while it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, we, though as restored creatures, Uh, because of his love, because of his care, because of his faithfulness, because his discipline is evidence, evidences all those things we just talked about. Because of that, we can cry out, Abba, Father, and run to him and know that we are received and that we can have communion with him, both through the signs of the table as well as within our hearts by the testimony of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. That didn't just happen because one day God went, oh, okay, sin doesn't matter. It's okay, guys, we're good. And it sure doesn't happen by us going, hey, oh God, use whatever uh, flippant, casual reference to the Lord that is often used. Uh, you and me, we're good. It doesn't happen that way. It came about because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it continues to happen for his sake. He is the ultimate great 
restorer. And I trust that each of you know that gospel message and are trusting in Christ in that way for, the, for your communion and contentment in the presence of your God. But Paul, is, so Paul starts off there. Where's my comfort ultimately coming from? It's coming from God. He's the one who comforts us. So in verse six, God who comforts the downcast, how did he do that? Well, he comforted from a, I know I got a little, I got a little carried away with the alliteration here. So with the C's and the R's, but uh, bear with me, okay? So we have a caring restorer, a comfort from a confirmed report. Titus comes and says, yes, they've repented. And Paul is overjoyed, finds comfort in that, takes trust in this report that's confirmed in his ears that yes, the word of God has taken effect in the lives of the Corinthians and thus he sees that God's work is being done and he is thrilled. You and I can bring comfort to one another um, as particularly if, if you're working within a, a context of the church and leadership and so on as different ones come back and forth and can give testimony regarding the real change that's taking place in people's lives. Yes, I've seen that. It's evident. Here's what's happening. Man, that is exciting. Parents, well, think about this with your kids, right? Uh, if one of you has been dealing with one of your kids, right, about something, and you say to your, your spouse, have you noticed about, you know, child A, that they're, that they're responding better. They're more, they're more meek in their obedience or something else. And the other parent goes, no, I haven't seen that. No, no, in fact, he was just mouthing off to me the other day. Is there going to be any comfort in that? <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, but if the other parent comes back and says, yeah, man, I have seen it too. It's awesome. Did you know that when I asked him to do this, he just went and did this and put it up? And you're, both of your hearts are happy. That, that's what Paul's talking about here. It's that kind of, of comfort that he received from Titus. And the Lord gives us that blessing. Because in and of ourselves, I'll go back to, you know, uh, the parent. So you're a parent, you're dealing with it. You're, you're trying, to, trying to discern what's going on in the heart of your child. Can you, do you understand everything about your child? You understand a lot, but you, can you see into their hearts and know exactly? No, we're, we're, we're limited, Right? So the Lord, in his grace, gives us comfort as others come alongside. And I know as a parent for me, when I've had people that are not just my, not just my spouse, as Karen and I talk about, you know, our kids and stuff, uh, but when somebody else in the community comes up and goes, hey, did you know what your son did? Do you know what your daughter did? Da, 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 da. And they're just going on about this. And I'm going, inside my heart is like, oh yeah, this is awesome. It's wonderful. It's a confirmation of what the Lord's doing in the lives of my children. That's it, brought about. It's a comfort. And it's a gift of the Lord that, that, yeah, the testimony's there and God has given me the joy of hearing that. Right, well, that's what's going on here. So it would be easy when people offend us to be want to walk suspiciously and go, hmm, yeah, sure, I'm not, you know, we'll see, right? But when others are coming alongside and saying, Hey, this person's really changed. This person's done this. This person did this, blah, 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 blah. It's like, wow, great. God is doing wonderful things. And to have, and be, have a readiness to receive that comfort from his hands and not just walking along waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because I know they're good. They messed up once. They're going to mess up again. I just know it. Sometimes that's the way we treat people, and that's wrong. 
Third, uh, comfort from a conciliatory response. Right, this, is, this is a response from the Corinthians. So he's hearing of the Corinthians' response in verse 7. Um, he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And then down in verse 12, um, I, I wrote to you, verse 12 is an interesting verse, by the way. Um, Although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, which you would think that's what it was, or for the sake of those who uh, were uh, dealing with them, which you would also think it was, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. I wrote about this so that you would be restored to me. Doesn't that seem like Paul's kind of minimizing the whole idea of the sin and what that was all about? And yet there's something else going on here. Paul clearly has never minimized this sin and has always been dealing with the hearts of the people who have been involved. But in this area specifically of comfort, he is rejoicing because what they are saying and what they are doing shows, shows evidence that real change has taken place and that they desire to be reconciled together. If you look also at verse uh, 12 again for the next, our next point, there's a, with Titus, he's rejoicing. So it's this common rejoicing, a conciliatory response, a common rejoicing. These things are happening here at the, at the Lord's hand, the Lord's blessing. As, as Paul sees the relationship, which is throughout this letter, Remember, for those of you who've been here, we've talked about this, the nature of this letter. It just goes up and down and back and forth. And you see Paul's heart in a way that is almost three-dimensional. This division between him and this beloved church has just been killing him. He's absolutely hated it. He's longed for it to be to be to be mended and to have their relationship of mutual love and confidence restored. And he's seeing it happen. And so in the area of his finding great comfort, uh, that, that huge issue uh, is being dealt with and he is rejoicing in it. So the comfort comes from God, ultimately from reports that uh, confirm what he has been hearing, the res- their response, his rejoicing together with Titus. Uh, it's a mutual thing uh, with them. Uh, if uh, you ever been around somebody when you you were really excited about something and they were like, huh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of lets the air out of your balloon a little bit. But when they rejoice with you, uh, that, that just adds to your rejoicing. Just makes it all the better. And Paul is really finding comfort in that with Titus. Uh, fifth point there, uh, verses 14 and 15. Remember, he's talked earlier about boasts, boasting in them, his pride in them, his approval of them. He says, whatever I boasted of, I wasn't put to shame about you. Everything that I said about you has turned out to be true. Phew, right? Ever given testimony about somebody? Oh, yeah, you know, letter of reference. Oh, this is great. Somebody ever ask you to do letters of reference? I always sort of 
Well, not always. It depends. It depends on who it is. It depends on how well I know them. Uh, but, uh, in fact, I try not to do letters of reference for people unless I know them pretty well. Because I don't want to go in there going, well, I sure hope that what I think is true because what happens if it's not and they really mess up and then it's not only their problem, now my name is mud. Right? Paul is saying, the boasts boast I made to Titus about you, O Corinthians, have turned out to be true. So he's finding comfort from, their, from the consistent reality between what they say and what, they, what they're doing and that they are shown to be true. Their words have been proven by actions. And then finally, all of this leads up to this confident relationship, which we mentioned there from uh, verse 16. I have complete confidence in you. If you go back to verse 4 real quick, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I'm filled, with I'm filled with all comfort. I have great pride. That really brings this full circle. Uh, also, verse 7, he says the same thing. Um, I rejoice still more because of this relationship. This is where he, he's finding comfort in this confident, in the confidence of this relationship, that he, he's not expecting it to fall apart again. He's not waiting for somebody to, after he's granted forgiveness, he's not waiting for them to blow it again. Now, how can he do that? And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the time and going, there is no way I'm going to cover this last point. So, that's going to be next week. Which I'm really like, oh, because this is the heart of all of it. What's coming up here? What... How did this happen that for all, with everything that Paul did, as great as it was, it could have all not taken place so that this confident, this relationship ended up restored. And the key has to do with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. So here's what I'd like you to do. Because we're out of time for today. I'd like you to take a look at verses 8 through 11. Very carefully this week. Read it over about 20 times. Think about what you see there. Think about what godly sorrow means. And plug that into the whole concept of what genuine repentance means. If the Corinthians had not genuinely repented, in spite of everything Paul had done, the relationship still would have fallen apart. The flip side is, is that if Paul had totally messed up his discipline, it wouldn't have mattered how genuine their repentance was. The relationship still would have fallen apart. It's a two-sided coin. We've looked at the one side from the person who's confronting the sin, who's seeking to discipline. Now we need to look at the other part of this equation. What does genuine repentance look like? And I guarantee you, as you look through this, it will not be all that you're expecting. And I'll give you another hint about this. Don't look at the things that are said about repentance uh, and, and their response as just being a, a random list. I'll give you a hint. It's progressive. It's progressive. Now, there's a grammatical reason for that, and there's also a logical reason for that, and a theological reason for that. We're going to look at that next week, God willing, at what genuine repentance is. But in the meantime, 
If you've, if someone has offended you, or you are in a position where you are dealing with conflict, where relationships have been broken, relationships of any kind, let your discipline, let your confrontation be marked by these characterizations, these, these, these uh, um, um, points of, of uh, practice and being just and edifying and helping and so on. And let your discipline be done, not just to get somebody to do something, but let it be done with the goal of actual restoration and confidence and comfort within that relationship that's been broken. It will transform the way you go about it. May God help us do that to his glory and for the betterment of all of us as we live together by his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We would not be known as the Ephesian church came to be known as those who were zeal, full of zeal in their, in their quest for righteousness, but without love towards each other. Lord, let us lovingly and faithfully, justly, boldly, with a desire to, to, to approve and, and edify, be, be characteristic of the things that we do as we confront others with sin in regard to our own relationships or within the relationships within the larger context in which we live. Lord, I pray that as we do so, we would, we would evidence the great love and discipline and efforts that you made to redeem us and continue to do as you sanctify us and making us more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So that Father, the relationships within the church and our homes and our businesses would be glorious, would be righteous, and would be those in which we have wonderful confidence because your, your honor, for the good sake of your honor and glory and the good of others, is being upheld. Help us to do this, Father. It is beyond us on our own, but by your strength, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We pray these things in his 